0: Welcome to the Limitless Grit Podcast, where we have conversations with social entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and ordinary people who are achieving extraordinary results. And now, here is your host, Shristi Gajarel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Limitless Grit Podcast. So for the past few weeks, I've had the opportunity to interview some of the the most incredible people on this planet, but this episode is so, so near and dear to my heart because Laura E. Stachel is one of my personal heroes. So to give you a little background on Laura, at the age of 17, she entered college to study for a career as a concert pianist and modern dancer. At her sophomore year of college, her doctor discovered an irregularity with her ovaries, and after her surgery, she naturally had a lot of questions. So many. In fact, her doctor said, if you really have so many questions, why don't you become a doctor? And that's when she decided to go to the medical school. Laura continued to practice medicine for years to follow until in 2002, she was diagnosed with severe degenerating disc disease, which forced her to stop her practice. Laura didn't let that stop her from making a difference in people's life. She then went on to get her degree in public health from UC Berkeley, in 2008, a professor invited her to join a research team in Nigeria, and that's when her life changed. In Nigeria, she observed maternity care at a state hospital, watching helplessly as doctors and midwives struggled to treat critically ill pregnant women in near-total darkness. It was there she decided to do something about it, and eventually created We Care Solar. Laura's work has been recognized internationally, And she has won multiple awards, including CNN Top 10 Heroes in 2013. According to Forbes, she was five brilliant social innovators you have never heard of in 2014. And We Care Solar was selected by Bloomberg New Energy Finance as one of its new energy pioneers in 2017. Laura is one of the greatest social innovators of our time and has impacted millions of people's lives. And I want to give special shout out to Ken Banks for introducing me to Laura and her work through his book, The Rise of a Reluctant Innovator. So if you guys haven't read that book, please go and read. That book is truly, truly life-changing and has impacted my life. So without further ado, everyone, Dr. Laura Stachel. Uh, thank you so much for coming to my podcast, Laura. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, well, thanks
1: so much for having me.
0: Of course, of course. For people who don't know who you are or are not familiar with your work, if you want to give us a little background.
1: Um, Well, I am an obstetrician and I worked as a clinician for many, many years. And several years ago, I started an organization that is called We Care Solar. And it's a nonprofit organization that is trying to improve maternal health and lower maternal mortality by bringing solar electricity to health facilities around the world
0: wow i mean we're definitely going to talk more about we care solar but um while i was researching i found out that when you first went to college you wanted to be a concert pianist and a modern dancer what made you go into medical field
1: well when i was in college um probably in about my sophomore year, I was found to have something growing in my ovaries. And so I became a gynecology patient. And people were not sure whether what I had was very serious and was cancer or was something that was actually benign and more of a hormonal problem. And I had to have surgery. And I was very scared to have surgery. And right before I went to sleep, the doctor said, If you have a big bandage, it means that you had cancer and all of your reproductive organs are removed. And if you have a small bandage, it means that you didn't have cancer. And I remember waking up from surgery and immediately putting my hand on my tummy even before my eyes were open Mm -hmm. and finding out that I had the small bandage, which was a great relief. But it left me with a lot of questions. And I began asking my doctor a lot of things about my health. And honestly, I didn't feel like I got terrific answers. And the doctor once said in exasperation, if you have so many questions, why don't you become a doctor? (laughs) And so I decided, well, maybe that's a good idea. And so as a junior in college, I took my very first pre-med class and started on a pathway to become a doctor.
0: Wow. I mean, medicine must be so different, and especially you coming Out from music background or dancing background how were you able to excel in your classes
1: well the one thing I think is is that um, medical training has in common with doing the arts is that as an artist I had to work very hard on perfecting my craft so as a pianist at the time when I was in the conservatory there were days when I would practice up to eight hours a day to try and get something right so that took an incredible amount of discipline And so I think that I was able to actually transfer that same discipline to studying medicine, to really trying to learn something well, to try and be as as good as you can at your craft and to having a certain level of perfectionism. And instead of performing on a stage, I ended up performing in the operating theater and performing doing surgeries. And so, of course, you want to be excellent at what you do. I think the other thing that is transferable is that when you're a pianist or a dancer, you're trying to communicate a story and you're trying to connect to people in the audience. And as a physician, it was really important for me to be very good at communicating and to think about how are my patients going to understand the things that I'm trying to tell them? How do I imagine what their experience is? And so I would put myself in their shoes, and then try and be as clear as I could be, and trying to communicate things in a way that made the information I had to provide very accessible.
0: Mm. So how did you end up being in public health uh, from your medical field? How did, what made you change that career?
1: It's kind of funny. When I first started medical school, I always was interested in public health, but then I got swept away by doing clinical medicine, doing deliveries, doing surgeries as a gynecologist. And so I was pretty much deeply involved in doing clinical medicine in a private practice. And I was a doctor for a number of years. And then in 2002, I was actually doing a C-section when there was a searing pain that went down my back and I realized something was really wrong. I was trying to deliver a baby that was pretty much stuck in the birth canal and had to use a lot of effort. And I had this terrible pain and it felt like something had just sort of ripped down my back. And then I went to see a doctor and ended up with an MRI. And they told me that my spine mm. had number of degenerating discs and that the spinal canal was actually pressing on the nerves to my arms. And so the reason I had so much pain was that I was having all this nerve compression and pain. And they said I had to really back off of what I was doing. And first I had to stop doing deliveries. And then eventually I had to stop doing surgeries. And they said, you know, you need to rest for enough time until your nerves can heal. And you shouldn't go back to doing clinical medicine until you no longer have pain. So I stopped my entire practice and I spent a year doing physical rehabilitation, getting acupuncture, massage, doing physical therapy, trying to get to a point where my back could be strong enough to go back and do clinical medicine and not have pain. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that day never came. I continued to have some pain and they said, you probably should give up doing clinical medicine. And even though that was terrible to have that door close on me, it also provided an opening for me to study public health, which was something I'd always thought about. So I did enough physical rehab until I could sit up in classrooms and attend lectures. And I went back to school, um, to the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley. And when I was at Berkeley, I started studying global maternal mortality. And until that point, I hadn't realized that half a million women were dying every year around the world from something that in my mind was a joyous event, childbirth. I had loved being a doctor and delivering babies, yet for so many women around the world, every time they get pregnant, it was a life-threatening event. And so I became very interested in trying to understand more about that. And that's what led me on the path that eventually became starting a nonprofit.
0: Um. What was your initial reaction when you heard from your doctor that you cannot practice your license anymore?
1: Well, it was really hard for me to believe that things would come to an end. I, I was working very hard. I was um, someone that really completely loved what I was doing, and I really connected with my patients. And so many of My patients and I were very close to each other and I just couldn't imagine not being there for them. So I was the kind of person that if you called in the middle of the night, even if it wasn't the night that I was scheduled to be on call, if I knew you were having a baby and we had a close relationship, I would run to the hospital to try and be there. My home that I bought was literally a block away from the hospital so I could be as available as possible. Mm -hmm. But the idea that that was going to come to an end was a bit unfathomable. Um, and you know, it left quite a big void in my life. And so the idea that there could be some other way that I could still be connected to maternal health care was very important to me. And finding a way to do that through public health, I think really, you know, gave me a sense of purpose again.
0: Do you believe in destiny? I read the chapter in that book, and you said that what I initially viewed as a devastating setback, I now consider the beginning of the most fulfilling chapter in my life. Do you think that was a coincidence or that you were meant to create your company?
1: That's a very interesting question. I don't know if it's destiny. I think that I've always been a very driven person to make things happen in the world. And so the fact that I could take something that could have been a terrible setback and I was able to find another pathway to have meaning and purpose and to be able to contribute to the world, I think is sort of part of who I am. But... I don't know if I was destined to have a back injury. I mean, there's a lot of things I still can't do that I would love to do, but I'm just I'm just happy I could find something that's very meaningful to be able to do.
0: Mm-hmm. I just love your story, and it's so inspiring in a way that whenever something bad happens, most people become a victim, or most people think that's over, but you literally had to change your profession and you went out of your way to find your purpose. And I think that's so beautiful.
1: Well, I think the thing that that I learned from this is to stay open, you know, not, not to assume that you know how things are going to end up and how the chapter is going to unfold. And I think, you know, even the fact that I got to go to public health school, I didn't know that I was going to be allowed to be part of a project that was in Nigeria that I'd be able to see healthcare somewhere else or even what was going to happen when I went to Nigeria. So what happened was I did go to school Mm -hmm. and I was studying public health and then I found out that there was going to be a project that was a collaborative project between my school and a university in Nigeria where they were studying why so many women were dying in childbirth and in particular, What was happening in hospitals that was limiting the ability of doctors and nurses to provide life saving care? And at that point, I didn't really know more than what I had sort of read in textbooks. I knew that there were um, challenges that hospitals didn't have the kind of resources we had for equipment, for medication. I didn't think that they necessarily had as much training as we had. But it wasn't until I actually went to Nigeria and spent time sitting in a Nigerian labor and delivery room in a state hospital and watching day after day for 10 to 14 hours a day that I realized that they didn't have reliable electricity. And even if someone had told me that, I don't think it was until I could just observe the consequences of unreliable electricity that I would have any idea about the impact of that factor on maternal health care. So when I was sitting watching in labor and delivery, For example, at nighttime, when the lights would go out, the midwives would either use kerosene lanterns or they would use candles as their only source of light. And I would watch as they would struggle, for example, to read a a label on a medication bottle or to start an IV line or to resuscitate a baby because they couldn't see well. And then when there were people that needed cesarean sections and we would bring someone to the operating theater, It wasn't until I was in an operating room and saw the lights go out during a C-section that I said, "Oh my God, this is terrible! How can a doctor actually function where they don't even know if they're going to have light to do a C-section?" So we were in the operating room; the patient's body was open, the lights went out, and we couldn't even what was happening to finish the surgery. And luckily, I had a, a, a headlamp with me, and we turned it on, and we were able to use that to finish the surgery. But I thought, "Oh my God, this is devastating." And in addition to thinking this is horrible that the lights are going out, this happened on a daily basis, the doctors and nurses were completely accustomed to that type of a stress. So they didn't even have a strong reaction because in Nigeria, in that part of the country, there were blackouts every day. And so people assumed, well, there's blackouts at home. Why not have a blackout at the hospital? Now, coming from United States, I knew that if a hospital here was without electricity for one hour, it would probably be front-page news. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, I was in a country where if they did have electricity 24-7 for a week, that would be front-page news because people were so used to blackouts. I think the dissonance between my own experience in an American hospital and a hospital in Nigeria made it seem unacceptable to me that a hospital wouldn't have electricity and made me determined to do something about it. Now, I was kind of incredibly lucky that I was writing letters home and sharing with my husband and others some of the scenes that I was seeing as a result of challenges that the hospital was facing. And my husband is someone who was, um, as part of his profession, was teaching young people in the United States about solar energy. So he was finding ways to make solar energy really accessible to students so they could learn about this and think about ways to improve the world by having solar electricity. So when he heard stories of the lights going out or not being able to have blood refrigerated because there was no blood bank refrigerator because that required electricity or not being able to start an IV line because there were no lights in the maternity ward, he immediately thought that solar electricity could be one way to solve the problem. And then when I came back to the United States, he actually sketched out a design for the hospital. And as a student at UC Berkeley, I was eligible for a competition on campus that was trying to provide a prize for technologies that would provide a social good and I thought well providing solar electricity would provide a social good for the hospital so we entered the competition uh, and the competition was 11 days after I got back from Nigeria and I wrote up a whole white paper about how we could bring in lights for the operating theater and power for a blood bank refrigerator And also a communication system, because the lack of electricity meant that they didn't have power for cell phones, and there was no way to quickly assemble an operating team when there was an emergency surgery required. So we drafted this up, and I drew diagrams, and then we found out that we were finalists for this competition And we went to the finals, and I, at that point, knew so little about solar electricity that people were interviewing me, and I I hardly knew what I was talking about. And we we got honorable mention. We didn't win the full prize, and I was devastated because honorable mention was a prize amount of $1,000, and we knew we needed much more than that to support the hospital. So I called the head of the hospital in Nigeria, and I said, Dr. Mwazu, I'm so sorry. I wanted to get you funds for a solar electric system, and we didn't get enough money And he said, don't worry, Laura, you planted a seed. And from that seed, a great tree will grow. And within 24 hours, someone who was one of the judges at the competition called me at home and said, I'm sorry you didn't win the competition. I wish you had won. How much money do you need? And I immediately told him the amount, which was double the prize amount for the competition. And three weeks later, he was able to find funds from the university to support our project. And we were on our way.
0: Wow, that's incredible. That is so incredible. I have a question. What was a moment in Nigeria that you realized that you had to do something about the situation?
1: Well, there was one evening when I was in labor and delivery, and I decided to stay overnight at the hospital that night. And there's a condition in pregnancy, a complication that's called eclampsia. Eclampsia is when the blood vessels start to constrict and there's restricted blood flow to the brain to the lungs to the kidneys and also to the uterus so a baby will not get good blood flow and when the blood stroke blood flow to the brain constricts what happens is women start having seizures so they have convulsions like um, with epilepsy Mm -hmm. Um, in this case it's during pregnancy it's called eclampsia so this woman was having seizures she had stopped having good blood flow to her kidneys she had no more urine from her kidneys. Her lungs were rattling with fluids because they didn't have good circulation. And it was nighttime, and the room was pitch black, like there was not any light whatsoever. And every time she breathed, I heard her lungs rattle, and I was standing in the corner of the room thinking, oh, my God, she's going to die. I'm going to be in this room. She's going to die right here, and I'm, I'm powerless to do anything. And I realized that even though I was a physician, an obstetrician, And I had studied public health in the United States that I had no idea the situation was this bad. I said, my God, if I don't know it's this bad, probably a lot of people don't know. And maybe if they knew, they would do something about it. And I said, this woman is dying in silence. And why am I here witnessing this? It's almost like a chamber of horrors right now. Why am I bearing witness? And the answer that I gave myself is maybe I'm here because I could be a voice for women like her who are dying. And maybe the fact that I have resources and I'm connected to the university, maybe I can do something, even though she can't. And so that was the moment that I vowed to try and do something in her honor.
0: Wow, did she die?
1: Miraculously, she actually made it through the night. And I left Nigeria before she had actually regained consciousness, because at that point she wasn't. But I called the nurse's from the um, plane as it was about to take off and they said she had just woken up
0: wow. so i believe
1: she is actually alive
0: ah uh, that is crazy and i believe that hospital's name is Kofan Gyan state hospital what was your initial reaction when you first went there
1: well i had read stories before i went to kofangayan that um, families where women had died had told other researchers that sometimes they were being turned away from hospitals that doctors wouldn't provide the care they needed. And so that seemed unfathomable to me that a doctor wouldn't provide life-saving care. And so when I went to Kofengine and saw the stress that people were under and I saw they didn't even have electricity to use an ultrasound machine to power a blood bank refrigerator, to do surgeries, it gave me much more compassion to why a doctor or a nurse might not be able to save a life. So I went from feeling like, oh, these people were so mean not to take care of patients to saying, oh my God, there's such a stress when they don't even have electricity and lighting. And if we could do something about that, maybe we could make a difference. Mm. So I knew that my husband had designed the system and that we finally won the funds to take care of things. So we actually did design and install solar electricity for the operating theater, the maternity ward, the labor room, and we brought in a blood bank refrigerator. And over the next year, the maternal deaths at that hospital went down by 70%. So they used to lose three to eight women every single month from complications of pregnancy and childbirth. And after our program, the deaths went down to anywhere between zero and two a month. And I actually called the hospital um, a couple of months ago, and they said in the last year they had two deaths for the entire year, which was just a remarkable difference. The thing to realize about these hospitals is it's not like an American hospital where you go in and you're healthy, and then most of the women there are going to have a healthy childbirth. The people who come to the hospital are the ones who very often fail to deliver at home they're very high risk to begin with they may have been in labor for days they may have had bleeding they may have had seizures they may have twins everyone coming in the hospital is very complicated so that's why they have such a high death rate to begin with and if you can imagine being a doctor or a nurse and to provide life-saving care and not even being able to see what you're doing do you
0: do you just wake up every morning and feel so great what you're doing because you're literally saving lives
1: um you know, I feel very lucky to be able to connect people with the resources they need. But at the same time, I guess I'm always looking at all the other places that need help. So we created something that's called a solar suitcase, which is this compact unit. It has everything needed. It has lights inside, solar panels, a battery. It has headlamps. It has phone charging. Even has a fetal Doppler, a monitor to be able to assess the baby's heart rate during labor. And so we package these and now send these to health centers around the world. And so, yes, I feel grateful to be able to have the opportunity to do this, but I know there's hundreds and thousands of health centers that still are in darkness. So I guess I also think a lot about how do we try and bring this to as many places as possible. So this year we've launched an initiative that's called Light Every Birth. And with this initiative, what we're trying to do is ensure that every health center in a country gets reliable lighting for childbirth and we did our first country launch in Liberia. I went there in March. I met with some of the high-level people in the country, like the president, the vice president, the head of the Ministry of Health, heads of UN agencies. And we engaged with them and got their buy-in. We found funders to help support our program. And we basically have a commitment now to make sure every every health center is going to have light for safe motherhood. Um. And next, we're going to be trying to do the same program in Uganda. I have a team going out next week to Uganda to follow up on meetings that I have with the Ministry of Health in the past, and hopefully we'll get their commitment as well. One of the things that's disheartening, though, is there's just not a lot of budget. There's not a market for this. It isn't like I can sell our product and there's going to be people buying them. The health centers that we're serving are quite impoverished, and so we are also At the same time as trying to reach these health centers, we also have to reach philanthropy groups, corporations, individuals that care about our mission as well and want to join with us in order to try and support the work we're doing. So there's always
0: plenty of work to be done. Wow, that's so incredible. And also you are empowering women with this project. Uh, I was looking at one article. You started a program called Women's Solar Ambassador Programme. Um, so you are empowering women while helping them to, you know, give birth.
1: You know what? I think that's a really good point that you bring up because certainly women and their newborns are the beneficiaries of our technology, but I felt like it was really important for women to be the change makers as well. And in addition to trying to supply technology, we really wanted to build local capacity. So people in their own countries would understand how to install solar, how to use it optimally, and how to maintain it over time. Because just giving technology to countries that don't have a lot of infrastructure is really only a temporary solution. If something breaks and people don't know how to use it, then you're just going to have, um, you know, a lot of equipment that's broken in other countries. So in order to have this capacity building program, we decided we needed people to become trainers. And I thought, how, what better than to have women become the trainers so that they're leading the training programs? And we brought together a group of women in 2012 that we um, we opened up applications from around the world. We had 14 women and we trained them to be experts in solar suitcase technology in how to assess which health care um, centers need help, how to do the installations, how to train other people to use the equipment. And that program has been really inspiring and very successful. And the women who started with us in 2012 loved it. They've continued to be ambassadors. And this year we're hoping to do an ambassador program where we train primarily African women to also um, be the change makers.
0: So you're starting a movement. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's amazing. So you and your husband had no idea about entrepreneurship or social entrepreneurship. And I was talking to Ken Banks, and he said, no one voluntarily wants to be a social entrepreneur. There are very few people who want to be a social entrepreneur. And it's a really difficult thing to do. How were you able to learn everything and create an organization that's thriving?
1: That's a really good question. I think,
0: you know, A, what's really important
1: is that you need to have something that you're very passionate about because, as you said, it's a very difficult thing to try and build an organization, to build a movement. And where that comes from is that my heart is just so drawn to this issue. And so, to me, it's so important that women get the services they need that, you know, I just can't bear the thought that women are dying trying to bring life in the world. I just think that's inconscionable. And so the fact that we're doing something that's making it possible for health workers to see that make that encourage women to come to health centers, not just when there's a complication, but for a healthy delivery so they can be there and get good care. That's really, really important to me. But in order to really learn how to do this, we had to think How do we manufacture things? How do we make a solar suitcase that's not my husband just building this in the backyard, but something that we can design so it can be made in a factory? How do we get these to be shipped to other countries? How do we find partner agencies? We work with UNICEF, Save the Children, AMREF, Pathfinder, different International NGOs and UN agencies in order to identify which health centers need help and to partner with them to deliver these to where they're needed. So we didn't know how to do that in the beginning. And so we had to be very humble and just ask people for help. I was very lucky that I was a student at UC Berkeley. So I was able to tap into people in the engineering school um, in the information technology department, in the business school, I entered a number of competitions early on, global social venture competition, global social benefit incubator, competitions where um, they're kind of set up to help people try and develop a business plan and try and think about all the things that are needed to develop a social uh, enterprise. So if there are people listening to this that have these ideas, you should really avail yourself to some of the resources that are out there. It's really wonderful now that business schools are really trying to promote social entrepreneurship and providing training programs. And then we just got a lot of advisors early on. So I would talk to business people. I would go to talk to people about manufacturing. We'd visit factories and say, how do you do this? And we just, you know, we're never afraid to say, I don't know. And would you be interested in helping And I think that um, being able to tell the story of what it's like to be a woman trying to get life-saving care, to be a health worker unable to provide care, I think those things really spoke to people that I met with Mm -hmm. and people were very generous of trying to provide information for us and support, to provide discounts on services. So I've been very, very lucky and along the way have brought many, many wonderful people to be part of this journey with us. And so my husband and I went from never knowing anything about business to really being able to lead an organization that has brought in actually millions of dollars to try and support international maternal health care by now.
0: Did you ever feel pressure or overwhelmed? Always. (laughs) 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 Daily.
1: How do you deal with that? I don't want to make it sound like it's all been fun. It's It's been something where repeatedly I'm outside of my comfort zone And I've been frightened at time and feel like I don't know what I'm doing and this is too hard. And the other thing is, is that I have three children and I feel like it's taken a huge amount of my energy. And so trying to balance having a family life with having an international nonprofit where I have to speak to people on the other side of the world at all hours of the night here. I mean, that's been a challenge for everybody. And sometimes when I feel like, oh, this is just too hard, I'll open an email or I'll speak to someone and hear an incredible story. And there was one of those days where my husband and I just felt like this is too hard. We just can't do this. And there was a man who wrote to us, a physician who was from the um, DR Congo. And he asked us to try an overnight ship in my solar suitcase. He was in the He was in uh, New York and heading back to the DR Congo. And he said, I have to go back this week, but I heard about your suitcase. My clinic doesn't have any light. Can you please help us? And I said, oh, my God, that's how are we going to do this overnight? My husband said, sure, let's do it. So we sent it to him overnight. And on Skype, we taught him how to use the suitcase. And I said, promise me you're going to write to me or call me as soon as you get to the DR Congo because I want to make sure you understand how to use it and make sure you were able to get through customs without any problems. And I didn't hear from him for five weeks and I said to my husband you see he probably lost the suitcase and he doesn't want to tell us well five weeks later this doctor Dr. Sebasaho called us he said I'm so sorry I didn't call you right away he said the day that I got to the DR Congo there was a woman delivering twins and the suitcase was fantastic I was able to help her with the delivery safely but the next day there was an outbreak of cholera and for the next 30 days I took care of 122 mothers, fathers, and children with this disease. He said, in the past, I would lose 50% of my patients and 80% of the deaths happened at night. He said, with the solar suitcase, for the first time in the history of the island, everybody survived cholera. Wow. And he said, we are witnessing what light means in communities where night means death to those in need of care after the sun goes down. And I heard this story and my husband and I were listening on the phone and like tears were coming from our eyes and we were looking at each other and we said, okay, we can't quit. We have to
0: keep going, you know, now that we can see what this does. It just gave me chills. Wow. That's powerful. So I think it's
1: really, you know, seeing what the work is doing and realizing that there's nobody else that's here to fill that gap. hmm that's what keeps us going that, you know, we just want to make sure that we can continue helping people and people get, get what is really in our, in our mind, a a fundamental right, you know, the right to good healthcare, the right to have light when you're expecting to have healthcare. So that's what keeps us going.
0: So what advice would you want to give to a 20 year old, 25 year old entrepreneur who is, you know, who knows the issue that's, it's really bothering them and they're paying attention to that issue, but might not have resources like you had in terms of your husband's expertise or being part of a community like UC Berkeley. But this individual might be somewhere in Nepal or somewhere in Afghanistan and wants to make a difference. What should they do if they want to start something like that?
1: So at this point, I've really developed quite a big network, but at the beginning, there really wasn't a network. So the first thing I would say is if you really care about an issue, that's wonderful. It's really important to care. And the next thing is how can you describe that issue to someone else so you can get them to care as well? Because nobody can do this work alone. So think about the way to really help people to relate to the story that you care about. And generally, you know, telling someone a story that really has touched your heart is the way to touch their heart as well. And then think about, you know, what would you need to help, even if it's just one part of the problem. So maybe the problem seems overwhelming. Like for me, I could have said the problem was that the entire hospital needs help, but I took one piece of it, right? I said, light, let's that. Let's have that be the one thing. And then think, what would you need to help that one part of the problem? Who would you need to talk to? And maybe you're not at this moment part of a university, but maybe you can write to someone in a university or write to someone in a business or meet with someone that you think may have expertise or look on the Internet to see whether other people have also been identifying the same problem and how did they look at it. A lot of social entrepreneurs look at how people have addressed similar problems in other countries and then try and transpose that to their own country. And I, do, I don't think you should be afraid to write to someone who may have either solved that problem or maybe some similar type of problem and ask how they did it. I get letters all the time from people that are wanting to get advice. And I think that people who are social entrepreneurs are going to be willing to talk to you and help help you to think it through. But don't keep the problem to yourself. You absolutely need to talk to someone. Or if you have Facebook, write on Facebook. Say, hey, I'm thinking about this. Has anybody thought about that? Who could help me? And I think you just need to start with, you know, trying to address one piece and not thinking about how the thing is going to look five years from now. Like for me, I never had any idea we were going to have an organization or start a movement or have, you know, opportunities to speak at the United Nations and the World Health Organization. All I knew about was I wanted to help one hospital have a little bit better care. And so think about what's the piece that you think you can help with. And when you solve that piece, you may have more ideas about how to solve the next issue. And you'll have that much more experience to bring with you when you're looking at that problem as well.
0: Uh, so you feel like the reason uh, your company succeeded is because instead of thinking about five-year plan or ten-year plan, you're like, what can I do today? And you broke that down into small little pieces.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And I have to say that sometimes people were saying we were
1: trying to do too many different things, but um, I'd say we kind of stuck with our gut. And also the fact that I'd spent time in the field, like to me, the fact that I was there and I actually went back to Nigeria a total of 14 times. So it wasn't just the one time I went back and I kept learning. And one thing I didn't mention to you is when my husband first started making these solar kits, the solar suitcases, we tried a lot of different prototypes, and it wasn't that we immediately came up with the one that was going to be robust and work for years. We would bring prototypes, bring them to the field, and then I would say, I would go back and see what's working, and what broke. Oh, look, this wire came loose. Oh, look, this person, when they turned on this switch by accident, they turned off the the uh, battery. You know, we we would look at how people were using these, and we had a real iterative design process that involved getting feedback from users and doing observations. And what's really important is not that you never fail, it's that you do something with the information. So when things broke or didn't work, even though it was really frustrating, we use that to try and do better the next time. How do we improve the design? How do we use that as part of our learning process? And sometimes I like to remember that when my own children, they learn to walk, it's not that they go from being little babies to being walkers they kind of crawl and then they stand up and they hold on to things and then they try and walk and they fall down and then they get up and they fall down and they get up and they fall down and after a number of times they're able to walk and so not the falling down that should stop you it's like that's where you learn that's where you have your your growth point to see how can i do better so the only way though to keep going is that you need to care about the problem you're trying to address so much that even when you have that frustration of failure that you'll keep trying to go back and do better.
0: Wow. I actually wrote that down when you said, it's not that you're not going to fall. It's like what you're going to do with that information. That's beautiful. And I mean, you've been featured in Time. You were CNN, You were nominated for CNN Heroes in 2013. In four, you were also nominated Five Brilliant Social Innovators, according to Forbes. Um, Nicholas Kristoff has written about you. Did you... When you started this organization, did you think it would have this sort of impact?
1: Um, Absolutely not. I had no idea. And I can tell you maybe one final story, which is that when we had just tried to help one hospital, I had read articles by Nicholas Kristof before I had ever gone to Africa. And I was really inspired by him. And I went to a conference that was a global health conference. And he was one of the keynote speakers. And after he finished his talk, I went up to him and I said, you know, I want you to know that you really inspired me. And I'm a physician and you had written about how challenging it was to get good health here in Africa. And I actually went to Africa and I saw for myself how hard it was. And I told him about bringing solar to a hospital and I gave him a handout. I said, I just want you to know this is what I'm doing and you've really been an inspiration. The next day, I started getting emails from people from around the world. And it turned out he had written a blog about us. Wow. I had no idea. And in fact, we got both donations and then requests for solar suitcases. And that was the moment that I realized that what I was seeing in Nigeria was actually an issue that was affecting people around the world. At that point, I didn't even realize that. And so the fact that people were asking us from Rwanda, from Tibet, from Nepal, you know, for solar suitcases showed me that oh my god we're tapping into something that's much bigger than i ever realized so no i never realized it was going to go where it was going to go or that we would get the kind of attention or that we even had any type of like a giant communications plan but it does speak to the fact that these problems if you can tell a story that people can relate to these problems are one that other people will care about and so for me i told you the story of the woman that was dying in silence or that she was struggling in silence that night in the hospital you know i feel like i was able to be the voice for these people and that now that we've gotten so much attention even if our organization were not to succeed for some reason you know we now have people at united nations that care about this at world health organization that are working on the issue of electrification of health facilities at UN Foundation. So a lot of people now are beginning to care about this. And so that, to me, is probably the most important success of this, that it isn't dependent on any one organization or any one person, that people have joined together to say, yes, electricity is a really important component of global health care and that women do deserve light and to have reliable electricity so they can have safe childbirth.
0: Well, I just love that you're not... You know, you're not even taking the credit. You're just like, I am happy that people are aware about the situation. And even if my organization doesn't exist, people are aware about the situation. And that's so incredible.
1: Well, if there's people that are listening that are thinking of starting a nonprofit, one way of looking at nonprofits is that why do they exist? They're existing because there's some gap, right? That either the government or the market isn't really fulfilling some demand that's there. So in a sense, if a nonprofit were to go out of business, it might mean that it's going out of business because the problem's being taken care of by other forces, right? Like putting yourself out of business is actually success. I once heard um, President Clinton give a talk and he was talking about that. Like that should be your goal, to get something to be so well taken care of that you don't need a nonprofit to take care of it.
0: Um, I want to ask you some rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little better. If you could recommend two books, what would you recommend to our listeners? Oh, well, right
1: now I'm reading two excellent books. One is called Strength in What Remains by Tracy Kidder, and it is the story of an incredible man from Burundi. He was a medical student named Deo Gratias, who left the Civil War, came to New York with nothing, like $200 to his name and nothing else, and ended up over the next couple years, finding a family to take him in, going back to college at Columbia, then becoming a doctor and going back to his own country to actually start a nonprofit um, to build a hospital and improve health care in his own country. And so it's an incredible story of someone that overcame amazing, uh, struggles to be able to start an organization. And I actually met him a few weeks ago and I really recommend it. It's called Strength and What Remains. And the other book I'm reading right now, which is fantastic, is called Being Mortal by Atul Gawande. And it's a book that really is allowing people to think about the aging process and actually the dying process and think about the system's that we have developed in our own country around that and how that could be changed. Um, and it's, it's a very inspiring and very well-written book. So those are the two books I'd recommend this week.
0: Yeah, I've actually just finished reading uh, Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. He's such a great writer.
1: Yeah, well, I, I'm really inspired by him. We can trade books. I can read yes. that <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yes. So, is there any movie or documentary you would recommend?
1: It's really funny. I'm so busy at my job that I never go to movies except when I'm on the plane going to Africa. I get to watch a bunch of ones. So I'm trying to think <laughs> cuz I've seen some great ones lately. The last one I just saw on the plane was Hidden Figures, which is which is standing out in my mind. But there was another movie I saw. Oh, I will tell you the movie I thought that was the best movie I've seen. Lion. Have you seen that?
0: No, I haven't. Is it good? Favorite
1: movie, favorite movie right now is Lion, the story of a young boy from India who gets separated from his family um, and eventually adopted by a family in Australia and his struggles to try and find where he was from 25 years later.
0: Wow. Incredible story. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I never watched movie either. And when I'm flying to Nepal, it's like 24-hour flight together, and I watch all the movies. Right. <laughs> um, if you could give advice to your 17-year-old self who was a dance major and wanted to be a concert pianist, what advice would you give?
1: Um, really make sure that you love whatever you do in life and, um, find the things that really sing to your heart and make sure to connect with people around you.
0: That's awesome. Um, what is a quote or a mantra you live by? Mm. There's one that I love by Margaret
1: Mead. Um, it goes like this, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has
0: wow and you are changing the world
1: with a bunch of other people i i know it sounds like i'm doing this alone but it's certainly not it's really by joining hands with lots of other people that we can make change
0: i love this book called mindset by carol Dweck, and it's all about fixed mindset and growth mindset and you represent what it means to have a growth mindset whenever you're starting a new company or you change profession and you are still trying to better yourself in that profession and eventually you become one of the best, right? And it's not because you are talented, but because you truly believe in that and you are not afraid to work hours upon hours. How did you have that sort of mindset? And if is there a way for someone to cultivate that mindset?
1: tell you a couple of things. One is that when I was two years old, uh, my parents put me in nursery school and the very first day they were the nursery school was sort of giving all the new students a tour and they brought us to part of the school where there was actually a swimming pool and the lifeguard was taking us around to show us the pool and I didn't know how to swim and I had my clothes on and I jumped in the pool and the lifeguard who also had his clothes on had to jump in and save my life. And they lifted me out of the pool and they said, Laura, why did you just jump in the pool? You don't know how to swim. And I said, because I wanted to look around the bottom. So I think there was something that's intrinsically about me where I've kind of been a bit fearless and I've always been very curious. And so I think I have taken that throughout my life. But, you know, given that that happened to two, it probably was part of me from the day I was born. But um, there was a book I read that was called The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. You know mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Series? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he recommended was to learn something new every year. And I love that idea. I love the idea that you're a consummate learner. So, you know, I'm now in my 50s. And I know most of the people listening to this are going to be a lot younger. But I think that going through life and imagining that every year you get to learn something new and you get to be a beginner, and that's kind of the fun of being part of life, is a great way to live. So I don't really, I haven't studied mindset theory. I really don't know what a growth mindset is. But if part of it is about being open and continuing to learn, then I would say that that is definitely something I like to live by.
0: Mm. It's, uh, mindset theory is all about that, and that's, that's incredible. Last question, what's your definition of courage?
1: I would say um, being thoughtfully fearless. So by thoughtfully, I mean not putting someone in such a risk that they would actually do something detrimental, But, um, you know, being aware of what the risks are and stepping up and stepping forward.
0: All right, Laura, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Hey, you guys, thank you so, so much for listening to this podcast. I really, really appreciate your time. And if you enjoyed this episode, then make sure to subscribe because every single week I will come up with awesome and epic interviews like this one. And do not forget to check out my website limitlessgrid.com for show notes.